Your business can only grow as big as the way you think about it. And if what you've been doing until now is thinking about it as a bunch of technical things you kind of have to hook together, that's only going to take you so far. And the self-honesty required to admit this is, well, if that's where you're really at, that's unfortunately rare. I'm making some money, you hear these business owners cry. And yeah, but <laughs> if you want to level up, doing more of the same thing is not what's going to get you there. There's this uh, graph in Vern Harnish's Scaling Up. It shows you numbers and revenue sizes of companies in the United States. And maybe, like I was, you'll be really surprised at just how few there are on the higher end of things. And in between each plateau as they go up, and and it's like... 96% of the 28 million companies make less than a million dollars a year. And then there's a valley of death up to 1 million plus, and only 4% of the 28 million firms are there. And then there's another plateau up, and then less than half a percent are at 10 million. And there's only about 17,000 companies at 50 million or more revenue. So when you hear people saying, oh, I'm going to make a $100 million company, eh, you're probably not. <laughs> And you certainly won't unless you change your thinking. So you get this diagram and you see this valley of death between each plateau. That's where you need to learn, adapt, change your thinking, or die. And if you don't die, you're going to try to grow, fail, collapse, and fall back down to the old plateau and say, well, that didn't work. I've been around a long time. I've been running my own business, well, officially since 2012 started in 2011 I was doing freelancing stuff in 2010 when I moved to the US and was allowed to work and in the first several years of my business I talked newbie talk and newbie talk is traffic and conversion and honestly the newbies don't even know that like it's it's really bad they think you're a magician when you start talking about that stuff and so that's what I talked about for like four or five years and then something happened in 2016 I worked with the a change management consultant from Holland for the better part of the year. And all he did was take care of tech companies of a thousand people or more. So I learned a lot, but I stopped talking newbie talk then because he changed my mind about a lot of things. And so the stuff that I had been talking about, which were tactics that were good for newbies, like how to bring in your best prospect, how to qualify them, turn them into buyers, what to say, how to set up your sales page, what to write, because I've been a copywriter for over 20 years, the thing to say in the video sales letter, all that stuff was what I had been talking about, and it's all still out there. You can find it. It's in forum posts and videos and blog entries and stuff. It's all free. But I quit caring about newbie talk. It just seems really stupid to me now. And a lot of people don't like that. They, they don't get it. And, uh, well, I guess that's kind of their problem. Not mine. The stuff that the newbies struggle with does not interest me anymore. And so what I've been doing for the last year or so are looking for new ways of thinking. And people who are struggling with their businesses and on the newbie side of things often find what I call the treasures I bring back from this search, you know, boring and philosophical. And, and to me, they're, the things that I bring back are as real as rocks and trees, you know. So that's a mistake on their end. And it's because they have this point of view of a billiard ball Newtonian universe. And if you've ever watched a science show, that's an outdated point of view already. But it's this idea that 
oh, well, one thing hooks up to another and you bump this with that and you put things in the right order together, these pieces of the puzzle, and ka you get success. And that's also the myth of the guru. And I'll tell you, it's simply not the case. I've been around a long time, 15-year corporate executive career before eight or nine years running my own business. The rest, it, it's nonsense. That, that's what newbies believe in and what they concentrate on is that Newtonian billiard ball hook it together and there's a magic formula, magic bullet thing. And and so anything else to them sounds like nonsense and it makes me laugh. It's a bit frustrating, I'll admit. But occasionally somebody comes along, you know, like Attila Dobe, the manager of strategy and innovation for Avis. He and I have had some fantastic conversations and you can go and watch a few of them, listen to a few of them on this show because he gets it. And, and often that leads to some awesome work. So I want to talk about just one of the treasures that I brought back. It was a part of a lecture uh, from a professor who normally talks about Japan and the war with Japan in World War II. But in this particular moment, he talked for about 20 minutes about uh, how the various nations produced tanks in World War II. So this was a talk about how Germany... The Soviets and the USA produced tanks in the Second World War. And you'll say, well, what does that have to do with my business? This is an example of different thinking. I hate having to spoon feed stuff to people, but apparently I have to. So what did the Germans do? They built these fantastically engineered war machines with super high specifications, loads of options. They're always coming back for rework at the end of the line, you know? And uh, very expensive, maybe 10 times the cost of their enemies. I want you to think about that, okay? The, the, the cost of a Sherman tank was, I think, around, I don't know, I can't remember, $30,000? They were making de Havilland planes, bombers, for $30,000. And a German tank might cost $200,000. I mean, it, the difference is, is astounding. So you have these long turnaround times to complete a production and, and the... German army to take acceptance of this thing after they've said, oh, can you put the rain hood on and paint it up nice and that kind of thing, right? And the way that this lecturer, who is a, an operations management guy like me, so he sees stuff, he has this still photograph from inside a German factory. And the amazing thing about it is there's these uh, metal staircases on rollers that will roll up to the tank and let the work crew go around it right and on top of it and he said look this is a thing that only I would recognize or my type of person would recognize I'm like yup what does it mean it means that these guys were not doing this in a singular production line they had various workstations that the tank would go to during production and stay there for a long time many hours that's what these these uh staircases signal right and that's very different from the single line of production where a tank stays in the spot for a very short period of time and one thing is done to it and then it moves to the next spot on the line he says this is a lot like a boeing airplane plant today so that's very interesting that's the the german production point of view they're making these essentially beautiful war machines right to very high tolerances and very expensive prices so what are the Americans doing? They have this amazing architect named Albert Kahn, and you should look this guy up. There's not a whole lot about him. There's a couple books and that kind of thing, but um, he's, he's fascinating. There's some articles about him. And what he did was he designed single-line factories, and their purpose was to churn out relatively inexpensive, no options, zero, you get the Sherman tank the way it is. <laughs> No, no uh, commander rain cover on this one, okay? Long production runs. 
that's what this is all about, to good tolerances. Okay? So we're churning these things out. And the Soviets, what do they do? Well, remember, they're U.S. allies at the time. Hitler has invaded, and uh, he's running into the Ukraine and all that stuff. So the Soviets get to borrow Albert Kahn, and he designs a major factory over there, which, which again, is really interesting to me. What they did was they did a study of how long does a Soviet tank survive in the field? It's like they break down and they get shot and blown up, you know, and what happens here? And they found out that the, the survival time was about six months. So what this teaches you, if you're smart, is why bother building these things to these micrometer tolerances that the fiddly German Reich is doing when they're just going to get blown up or knocked down in six months, right? Why bother? So their focus was, okay, we have this American-designed single line. It was very dirty and much more cramped than an American design, but still similar Al Albert Kahn design of a single production line. How can we lower costs? That was the Soviets' big thing. They focused entirely on lowering costs, and boy, did they ever lower them. And, so, and they made some great tanks, right? Everybody knows about the T-34. So the end result was that the USSR and USA churn out a ton of standardized tanks that did the job and ended up overwhelming Germany's production. The Germans could hardly get any tanks out in comparison. And these finely engineered, perfect German tanks sent out to the, the Eastern Front, they ended up having their transmissions filled with unexpected road dust. You go to fight the French, there's nice roads over there and in the low countries. What do you turn around and fight the, the, the Russians in the East? It's all dirt and dust. And, and uh, you know, when the fall and summer and whatnot is going on, that's what you get is uh, all this dust and grime inside, and that knocked half the tanks out most of the time in the, in the war in the East. And they'd have to take the, the engines back out and ship them back to the factory in Germany. So what's the point in, in developing these extremely expensive, finely tuned tanks when <laughs> the environment is going to chew them up? So coming back to your business, can you see the differences in thinking about the work here? These three nations have approached the problem of solving tank production from a different point of view. So imagine you're a coach, right? Germany has caught themselves in a trap. It's a trap, <laughs> Admiral Akbar shouts, because of the desire for high-tolerance, beautiful war machines. That was not the best solution. So let's overlay these modes of thinking these three modes of thinking on your business. Maybe you're a coach or something, right? Which approach have you been using unconsciously until now? Like, this is the way it is or the way that everybody does it. No, it's not. I just showed you three examples of solving the same problem. If you think other people with similar businesses to yours are running theirs like you're running yours, you're mistaken. They've picked another way. So have you been, without really thinking about it, running A... Uh, a highly customized, long, deliverable, exacting program? Or B, a well-designed but affordable, easy-to-fulfill program? Or C, a gets-the-job-done-barely, low-cost, quick-and-dirty coaching program? And they're all valid options, although strategy-wise, some are better than others for the situation, right? What war are you fighting here, right? What battle are you fighting in what marketplace? Is the approach that you've unconsciously taken on until now the right one to get you to the next plateau in Vern Hardish's scaling up diagram? Probably not, is my answer. Are you ready to be that self-honest? Admit where you're at. 
See reality as it is and adapt your way out of the plateau you've been hung up on, stuck there, so that you can move up to the higher plateau that you've been imagining. If that's you, you should speak with me. I'm Jason Kanigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies, and this is the kind of thing we get really, really excited about helping companies with. Strategy leading to operational excellence and highly profitable execution that gets major results for your customers. Thanks for listening.